Well, welcome to session four. And uh, we're going to be looking at uh, Enneagram point one. This is the last of the three points that are part of the instinctual triad or the body-based triad. And so we're going to continue with some of the teachings about that. But let's get into that by centering ourselves, by collecting our attention. And we do that, as we've seen, by connecting with our breath and by opening up our awareness of sensation. It's a funny thing how we could walk around and have very busy lives but still have so little direct awareness of our body. But it doesn't take a lot once we know where to look. To remember to connect with this breath, to remember to sense this body here and now, to be patient and open and letting whatever sensation is here reveal itself. And of course, noticing it won't be the same as the last time I checked. What is here in and as my body right now? Where do I notice sensation? And what is the quality of that sensation? And how does it affect me as I notice it? What shifts, if anything? And as I'm connecting with this breath and sensation, how does it affect my heart? How does it move me? How does it affect the mood? my atmosphere, we might say. So as I'm sensing the body, it's a very interesting thing that my body has an awareness and intelligence about when I'm in balance and alignment and when I'm off. If we're learning formal meditation, and many of you may well have studied formal meditation, uh, we may have learned that there are important teachings about posture, what in yoga is called an asana. And at first, we're taught the sort of external form of that. But we learn as we practice, there's a way that our body, through sensation, lets us know when we're in alignment and when we're not so much. And the part of us that tends to carry that knowledge is our spine. We can be aware of our spine. 
And you can feel when you're in alignment or a bit off. And it's a little bit shocking to see how many of our ordinary personality-based postures are quite out of alignment, and perhaps even intentionally so. When we come into alignment, and we can feel ourselves relating around this axis of presence that is related to our physical spine, we start to notice how many of the postures and positions we take are designed to cut us off from a flow of sensation and life force. That so many of our postures are to numb us out, cut off the sense of connection. And you can see how one and nine are interrelated in that way. So how does it affect me as I find that balance point? When I sense into my body and particularly my spine in such a way that I begin to feel more and more in alignment, more and more balanced around this axis of presence. Well, if we're tuning into that part of us, we're going to start to come into connection with the gift, the essential qualities of point one. When we're truly present and in our body in a real way, we begin to experience ourselves as aligned, aligned with something bigger, aligned with something real. It's hard to rationalize it or to explain it, but it's a very definite sense that we get. The other thing that tends to happen is we feel more of a natural self-respect. We feel um, a dignity of our being. We feel a dignity of our life. And when we're really connected with this quality of aligned presence, this gentle dignity and self-respect, we also tend to see that dignity in other people. We tend to see that which is honorable in people, that spark in them, whether or not they can see it themselves in that moment. Any of us who are trying to teach or 
do healing work or work as therapists or coaches, this is very important. If we can only see the reactivity and the personality structures of the person, we don't inspire them. We don't touch their heart. But when we're in this alignment and we're connected with this gift of one, this higher quality of one, we see the potentiality. We see the goodness in people. Indeed, as we open more and more to this particular quality of presence, we perceive a goodness in the world, in other people, and perhaps the most shocking of all, in ourselves. Like there actually is goodness in me. And this, of course, brings up a, another heart sense. Once I see this goodness in me and in other human beings and in the world, how does this shift how I show up with people? How does it affect the way I manifest myself in the world? Does it change my priorities? Does it change what I want to give my time and attention to when I notice this? This goodness is very hard to language, but we certainly know when we're closer. We know when we're warmer or colder in relation to it. We know when we're kind of in reaction to the world, feeling kind of cynical, where it's kind of hard to see anything good about people. All of us know what that's like. But then sometimes we just take a breath and we land a little bit more and there's this magic shift in which we restore that sense. And with that comes our willingness to take the next steps, to go where we need to go, to do what we need to do. It's quite remarkable. And it doesn't matter what Enneagram type we are, we all will have this sensibility sometimes. But if you happen to be an Enneagram 1, if that's your home base, then this is going to be very poignant and pertinent for you. The other thing that I, I notice when I'm more connected with this quality is that it feels like a restoration of the sacredness of life and of the world. There's a kind of natural honoring of what's here. Now, that sacred feeling I'm talking about is not necessarily about religion, although, of course, it can be. We might go to certain beautiful churches or temples or mosques, and in that we might connect with some sense of the sacred, but many people find their sense of the sacred in nature. Sometimes the sense of the sacred is restored just by seeing people do good things, just by seeing people help out. Sometimes we get our sense of the sacred by noticing how amazing our existence is to just bear witness to the cosmos, to the sky at night, to the movement of the trees in the evening. There's a, something speaks to a deep place in us human beings, and it gives us the strength to carry on. It's very important, and it comes out of this groundedness and this moment of alignment with the truth of that moment. Now, we might think, well, gee whiz, when your life's going well and you've got advantages and so forth, well, you can afford to think that way. 
and we can understand why we might have that point of view. But I want to make an alternative suggestion. In my experience, it's a lot of times easier to experience this goodness and sacredness and dignity when times are tough. When my friend or loved one is dying and I'm there with them and I'm doing my best to be present in that situation, there's an unspeakable sacred feeling in that moment. There's an awareness of the dignity of that person's journey. Even if that person lived in ways that I maybe didn't agree with, I still feel the integrity of who and what they are. And that's a big word for the one and the one in all of us is integrity. Integrity has its basis, this physiological sense of alignment. It's, it's unity, it's wholeness, but it isn't just wholeness. It's a wholeness where all of the components of that wholeness are intelligently operating in their correct place. The machine is humming along, the machine of life, and we feel a restoration in that. And as I said, the veil is often thinner when we're having hard times. I happened to be in New York City on September 11th. And um, New York City is my home. And as I'm sure everybody listening to this would be aware, that was a very difficult, terrible day that affected the whole world, changed in many ways the direction of many things in this world. And I can also tell you the people who were in the city for several days thereafter, maybe a couple of weeks, two or three weeks, it's like we were bathed in the sense of the sacred. People were so filled with the sense of the sacred that they, even people who had long-standing grievances with the police, for example, went and laid flowers at the police station to honor the men and women who had fallen during the events at the towers. People went and sang to the fire departments. People held each other. People sat on the stoops and took care of each other. And it was an astonishing experience to see this other sometimes hidden sense, not just of New York City, but of this possibility for human beings across gender, across race, across religion, across everything. There just was this recognition of something we kind of sort of know, but usually it's a few layers hidden from us. It came out and was there for all to see. People who had their trauma activated were being held by their neighbors, and there was a palpable presence in the whole city that changed New York City forever. That city will never be the same. And it wasn't only the trauma, it was also this opening of a portal to this other sensibility, this possibility for human beings. Now, to be an Enneagram One means in the back of my consciousness, I'm always aware of that possibility. I'm aware that there is this, so to speak, higher plane that we could all meet on, this world of decency and respect and the dignity of the human being and justice and being with each other in a real and true way. And one's long for that. They want us all to meet together in this sacred space. And when we can talk about it freely, 
Everybody, I think, understands that. We all know what that feels like. We all know when we feel closer to that. We all see how sometimes that sense strips away some of the hardened and cynical and crusty views that have caked around our heart from the difficulties we faced in our life. Who can blame us, right? But this other sense invites us beyond that, saying, yes, that's true, and there's more. Are you willing to look? Are you willing to give it a go? So as with the other types, this uh, one energy manifests through the centers in specific ways. And I've spoken a bit about this, but we could make it more explicit. Um, the one energy manifests physically as this natural alignment where we feel our spine kind of opened up and we feel a kind of verticality of presence. It also expresses itself as a flexibility. When I think of a lot of the traditional practices of yoga, for example, and the way we're going for kind of flexibility and alignment, that to me feels related to this one energy in everybody. To have that where, you know, a human being can look like a beautiful Chinese character brush stroke, you know, just that whoosh, a, a beautiful through line. And, and that feeling of expressing ourselves from that axis of grounded presence. And when you put that together with that groundedness and fullness of being of the nine and the rich aliveness and empowerment of the eight, you have a human being in his or her body. So that's pretty nice. Uh, and then, of course, that's going to affect the heart. When we are perceiving this goodness and this dignity, we are naturally benevolent and we are naturally caring. It's a thing I always come back to with Enneagram Ones, that even when Ones are kind of tangled up in their fixation and they're having a hard time in other ways, they're still caring. They may be a little stuck in how they're expressing that care, but the caring is there, and it at its core is this love for the goodness in people and wish to bring forth the goodness in others and in myself. This benevolence towards the world, wishing everyone well, wishing us to be the kind of human beings that we can potentially be and loving us even when we stumble and are unable to do that all the time. A lot of the greatest wisdom teachers on the planet have manifested this quality in various ways. They remind us, oh yeah, that's who I really am. That's how I want to be. That's how I want to live. And it comes out of this kindness and this uh, benevolence. The head center is similar to the eight. Remember, I was talking about how the eight energy in the head center was the ability to tell what's here now versus all the stuff I bring to the picnic, all this other history that tends to overlay my responses and my experiences of what's happening in my life now. This one energy is kind of related to that, but it begins with a quality of deep listening. 
when I'm stuck in oneness, I already have the answers. I know. And here's my opinion. Here's what I think. That's the road to ruin for the one. But the high side of one is a return to a kind of listening, a kind of receptivity. There's a feminine intelligence to it. It's like this actively receptive listening to reality, and from it comes discernment. And discernment here is a little bit more about discerning truth and the greatest truth that's possible now. What's the truest thing I could say or do right now? What's the most helpful thing I could do or say right now? How do I show up in the situation that will most support whatever benefit can be here, right? And sometimes that means talking, and sometimes that means holding silence. Sometimes it means taking an action. Sometimes it means holding back from action, or at least postponing it. And we're listening to this deeper truth with this heart of benevolence and this beautiful, flexible, aligned presence. And there you have the one energy moving through all three centers. And I don't know, I always find that very uplifting. The feeling of it is very uplifting and inspiring. It helps me, I'm not a one, but it helps me remember what I'm actually doing this work for, why I am on this road and why we're on this road together. When this is manifesting through personality, um, there's still some of that quality there, although mixed in with various ego traits. But the high-functioning one is curious. They like to learn from other people. They're always listening for the best idea what's going to be the best uh, solution to whatever problems we're facing. Ones are thinkers, but they're not exactly interested in abstraction. They're interested in practical ideas. They're interested in philosophies and views that help them live a good life. And they're interested in knowing about things that will make human life operate more intelligently and more in alignment with this goodness that we talked about. So that could manifest in all kinds of different ways. Ones are generous people when they're on the high side of it, but they're not self-conscious about that. They just see a need and go, oh, it's cold and you need a coat. Here you go. There's no muss or fuss about it. There's no self-congratulations about it. That It just is clear that's objectively what needs to happen in that moment. Ones are willing to make sacrifices. They don't need short-term returns. They don't even need congratulations for whatever good work they do. They're the one who can see the long-range benefit of something, that many things that we need to do for the well-being of our society, for humanity, are going to be maybe difficult or maybe costly in the short run. But in the long run, if we're thinking about our children and our children's children, that's going to lead to a better outcome. If we're only looking at short-term benefit, many things that need to happen on this planet aren't going to happen. So the one stands for what's the higher good? What's the long-range vision? Yes, we could do this and that, but if we do that, it's going to cost us down the road. So can we have enough vision to look at the long-range 
good. I used to say um, that the one is the sort of person who would accept paying higher levies or taxes locally for the sake of education, for the, of the school systems, even if that person didn't have children. It's just, it makes sense. It's what should happen. This is the greater good. The problem that ones will get into is this beautiful discernment also is related to something called conscience, which I'll talk a bit about, but it gets taken over by our superego, our inner critic. On the ego level, the inner critic tries to stand in for this wisdom and discernment, but the difference is the wisdom and discernment is receptive, as I was saying. The inner critic is based in past experience and past programming, so it keeps presenting the same answer to every problem and becomes kind of immovable. We'll see more about that in a moment. So we want to look at how this shift into personality is caused partially developmentally and in a way that's necessary, but also it some of the difficulties are the result of this loss of presence. And in this case, the loss of presence is experienced as the loss of goodness, the loss of the sacred, the loss of dignity, the loss of fairness, the loss of balance. And that's a very terrible, painful loss. A lot of the um, ideas in traditional religion certainly in Christianity, about original sin, for example, are addressing this sense of fallenness. Like there was this goodness in our hearts and what the hell happened? Why are we in this situation? Why are people treating each other so ruthlessly and unkindly and with so little generosity? What happened? So there's this sense of falling away from the good as terrifying. This produces a passion in Oscar Ichazo, again, the man who put types around the Enneagram symbol. He called this passion anger. Now, again, as in each of these points, I can definitely see what Oscar was pointing to, but anger is not one of the original passions or sins described by the Desert Fathers and Mothers. Nor, in my experience, is anger a mistake. Anger is necessary. People who can't be angry tend to have a lot bigger psychological problems than the people who have some kind of handle on their anger. I would even go so far to say people who repress or deny their anger are more likely to act out in destructive ways because they don't know that part of themselves. Further, Anger is just a kind of energy. It's a body-based energy. It affects our emotions. It's an activation of our nervous system. And when you're present with it, it only lasts a few seconds. You have this rise of energy that helps you do things you need to do, and then it's gone. It's done. We're, we're on to the next thing. When we can't be present with anger, it sticks around. It hides. It comes out in acting out. It comes out in passive-aggressive expressions. It comes out in shutting people out. It comes out in all sorts of ways. We haven't got rid of it. We've just hidden it. So I don't think anger is really the problem. It's this 
unconscious layer of anger. And Oscar Chazo called the fixation of the one resentment. But I would argue that's a better name for the passion. Resentment is a feeling. It's a heart quality. It's this aggravation, annoyance, exasperation, frustration. Oh, my God. Can you believe it? And oh, what is the latest idiocy coming out of Washington? And what is this? And oh, my God. And people are this. And I made that mistake again. And I went with that idiot boyfriend. And what was I thinking? This kind of frustration and kind of disgust and annoyance with ourselves, with humanity, with the way the world is. Oh, it's, it's kind of hard, you know. If we think that's alien, just look at how many conversations we have that are complaining about something. Right Now, I'm not saying here that complaining is bad or wrong. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying there's a way this energy runs a very unconscious pattern in us. We get lost in it. And sometimes we get lost in it for a long time. And if I'm an Enneagram One, as much as I'm wanting to be rational and wise and discerning, when this energy starts to move in me, I am none of the above. Another thing it does when that passion gets in the driver's seat is it begins to blur the line between objective and subjective, where what I like and don't like feels like an objective truth. Uh, it, and so you get a situation, instead of saying, you know, I didn't prefer that movie, I didn't care for that piece of music, we say, that movie was terrible, or I, I, that, that's bad music. We collapse the, our sense of, of preference and like and dislike with an objective fact. Now, of course, we're entitled to have our likes and dislikes, but when we think they're objective and that everyone should agree with our likes and dislikes, we're probably going to get into weird situations with people and probably already have. So this passion, I, I guess you can feel it. It's kind of scratchy feeling. It's like you've got a itchy sweater on and can't get comfortable. It's kind of squirmy and... Ugh. and as a one, I don't want to feel that way, so I'm trying to identify with ideas and agendas and, and dealing with things so that I can override this frustration by fixing problems. Now, if we go a little deeper into this, of course, each of these passions has a kind of heart. And I spent a few years trying to figure out how to describe these hearts. Um, the one heart I call the grief-stricken heart. And basically, the loss of the goodness feels like a loss of the person you love the most, like someone you really love has died. And not only died, died unexpectedly. So suddenly you're, you're just struck by this enormous loss and you're reeling from it, right? And so at the core of this aggravation is actually grief grief at the human condition, grief at my limitations, grief at how far we seem to be from a light that we know is our true home, right? So that grief is overwhelming. And objectively so, certainly when we're little kids, uh, it feels debilitating. It just knocks us off our feet. So the frustration, the aggravation the agitation is mobilizing. 
it activates us. It gets us off the floor. It gets us on our feet again. Yes, the world may be going to hell in a handbasket, but I'm going to do something about it. Yes, these kids have made a mess of my house again, but I'm going to clean it up right now. And so the anger is a kind of way of trying to override the grief. Now, you might remember that the eight went to anger when she was actually feeling hurt. And so there's a similar pattern here. It's using a kind of anger and frustration to override a, another kind of feeling. The nine in between them is kind of the reverse. The nine is that when I'm actually feeling angry, it's easier for me to feel sad or feel misunderstood or disappointed, but it's more of a challenge for me to be present with my anger. So you'll see again, when you're looking at the Enneagram, these aren't just nine boxes of random traits. There is a beautiful way that they all are woven into each other and make sense as you look at the totality of it. So this grief-stricken heart is we're trying to overcome that through this. The ego is trying to save the day by keeping us mobilized with this agitation and frustration. And this also brings about the fixation, the mental part. And the fixation, Ichazo called resentment, as I said, which I think is a better name for the passion. So that leaves us with a blank. What would be a good name for the fixation? So, you know, when we look at ones, and if you are a one, it, it doesn't take a lot to see what's going on in our mind that keeps us frustrated, aggravated, and agitated. Judging. Judgment is mine, saith the Lord. I don't know how many times the scriptures say, don't judge, but it doesn't seem to stop people very much. Uh, and, and sometimes we use religion, we use scriptures to judge people, which it's telling us not to do. Now, judging is already pretty coarse. You know, by the time we're judging someone or judging ourselves or judging anything, really, it's already pretty extreme. There's almost a violence in it. The Buddha said that a, a day of judgment is, is a sad day. It's a sorrowful day. And when we actually feel the effects of judgment on our being, it's very painful. Uh, one of the reasons we're able to judge is because we're really not present when we're doing it. But long before we get to the sort of extremity of judging, what is it our mind is doing all the time in the way of the other fixations? And I would say it's simply having our opinions, having our positions. We have opinions and positions about pretty much everything. And we're not interested in learning new stuff. This is where I stand. This is what I think. Have a nice day. And of course, then we find other things in the media, on the internet, or friends that agree with our opinion and reinforce them. But frankly, you know, we don't care if, if nobody agrees with me. This is my opinion, right? Um, what I've noticed in my own journey is when I, I saw how often I was expressing opinions and how ouchy it was, I felt, uh, wow, I, I want to not have opinions. And then I learned a very important lesson, which is that you can't. <laughs> Lots of luck with that. Human beings, as long as we have egos and nervous systems that operate certain ways, we're going to have opinions. We're going to have positions. 
But as with all the other fixations, it's not to say that this is wrong or bad. It's just something humans do, but it very much limits and truncates the perspectives and vistas that are possible for us when we are a little free of this fixated view. So my suggestion is, and what I learned to do myself is, to notice my opinions when I'm forming them. To notice, wow, I've said this about a thousand times. Aren't I a little sick of saying this? Is there anything else here I might want to know about? Does this other person have nothing to, that would be of benefit to me? To sort of bring in a curiosity and a questioning quality. To meet the opinion with curiosity. To be curious about my opinion. To be curious about what's around or behind my opinion begins to open up another intelligence. And to my amazement, it starts to move me back into the higher side of one, the gift, the essence quality, and that discernment and wisdom that I talked about earlier. So the working with opinions and, and positions is, I think, a, a powerful practice uh, to just notice them, catch them as they're occurring, and to use them instead of something to cement my view of things, to use them as a springboard to some new fresh discovery, some new access to a living wisdom that is here waiting for you and me in each living moment. Whether or not we're ones, I think everybody can benefit from that perspective. Now, the other thing that I have been talking about uh, is how the centers lock into a certain pattern. Once we're in the, the fixated view and once the passion is activated, there's a way the centers lock into a certain relationship with each other. Now, a lot of ones might think of themselves as intellectual, as thinkers, but really that's not where ones are coming from. Uh, ones are coming more from a sense of conviction. And conviction is a body thing. It's a belly thing. It's a gut thing. It's an instinctual thing. And it is more intuitive and instinctual than it might appear. I think many ones have convictions, strong feeling about something, and then they learn how to justify that view by accumulating evidence that that view is right. But they have already an a priori view, unless they're very, very healthy ones. They're looking for information that supports that instinctual body-based conviction. Also, basically, opinions serve the function of being boundaries. Opinions are a boundary. They're not, when I have an opinion, I'm not curious about finding the truth. I don't know, want to learn something new. I'm not interested in how to get out of the box I'm in. I'm reinforcing the box I'm in because it's a defensive move. I'm asserting a boundary. And boundaries have to do with our instinctual nature, our body. The more we're out of touch with our body, the more we will assert opinions. We will have the control of the, of the eight. We'll be checked out and numbed out and in our inner world of the nine. And we'll be shielding ourselves with positions and opinions and being right of the one. And then all those are basically saying, leave me alone. Don't mess with me. I've had enough. I'm not available to you. I'm protecting my vulnerable heart. 
we can just pause and feel that it wasn't wrong or stupid to do that it was necessary but perhaps we don't want to go through the rest of our life wearing medieval armor we we don't want to go on vacation in a tank right we want to be able to choose to open up to life and to the possibilities of life and for that we need to be aware of the ways we're constructing these rigid perimeters around our heart and our soul so the way this happens in terms of the centers is we identify with a certain sense of the body that's going to be first and here the body is trying to correspond to this sense of alignment and goodness and so forth. But from personality, it doesn't do it by relaxing, by being flexible, by being sensitively aware of the spine and the nervous system. It does it through rigidity and tension. We tense up. We try to get ourselves straight. You know, sit up straight, jaw locked. You know, lock up those shoulder muscles, lock up those neck muscles, stop breathing deeply, and hold yourself together, man. It's that, that kind of holding myself together, almost like squeezing myself like a tube of toothpaste. And that by holding myself together in this rigid physiological structure, I'm trying to assert this position of goodness, of integrity, alignment. But it's coming from the wrong foundation. It's not coming from living presence. It's not coming from wisdom. It's the ego remembering something and trying to reproduce it. What it draws upon to support it is the heart center, surprisingly, the emotions. And so we get worked up about things. We get agitated. We go to our feed from the internet and we read articles that agree with our already agitated convictions about reality and and then we get worked up and that keeps us in this identity of this kind of frustrated person who feels like the only one in the world who cares right like we're taking the last stand against a wave of lazy ignorant bad people we're just going to save the day here with our integrity uh you know it's a beautiful innocent position from one point of view the sad thing is it just really doesn't work tends to make my life a hell and does not produce the results that i'm seeking and after a few years of this we probably might begin to figure that out so if you look at that the body is drawing on the heart center it's also being worked up to get stuff done as i said wow this house is such a mess i better clean it the agitation, the emotion around that gets my body moving, gets me to do stuff that I feel I'm supposed to do or need to do. The head center is almost being replaced, in a sense, by all these opinions, all this inner critic stuff. But the head center is the missing center. And so the appeal to the one is not to the heart, it's to the mind. This makes sense. Oh, that's really a good idea. I hadn't considered that. When ones are touched by wisdom, when they perceive wisdom in others, and particularly when they see that wisdom connected with some kind of selflessness or generosity, when they perceive an intelligent solution to the problem that they're trying to deal with, 
they respond to that and it restores their own curiosity, their own receptivity. And once that comes in, that body tends to relax, get out of those tense patterns. The heart becomes less agitated and we're moving back toward the gift of the one, toward the one as essence. It's, um, it's astonishing to me how consistently these patterns play out. Of course, they're disguised in all the ways that we move through life in presenting things a little bit differently than how they actually are for us internally. But as we start to really get the sense of what these centers are and how they are operating in us, both in this mechanical, unconscious way, but also potentially how they can open things up for us as we become present with them. Now we're getting into the realm of the real inner work and how this Enneagram tool is a map toward the integration of the different components of our consciousness. So if we're following that map and we're working on the issues and we're remembering to come back to the gift of the one, it's going to start working on that passion. It's going to work on that agitation and aggravation. It's going to work on that tendency to protect myself behind opinions and positions. We start to see that we don't need to defend ourselves that way. This other power is rising in us and it's trustworthy. And as we see that, we come out of this more defended position and we see there is a better way to get to what we want to achieve. There is a better way for us to bring into the world the kind of wisdom and integrity that we know is possible. So if that keeps working on my passion, the passion gets transmuted into the virtue, as we've already seen. And the virtue for the one is serenity. Serenity. Now, this is tricky because we hear these words and we think we know what they mean. And often we're suspicious about what they mean. So a lot of ones who tend to be people who are very conscientious about trying to do the right thing in this world, the people who are trying to heal the environment or address social injustices or uh, all sorts of things that are really important things to do, they hear serenity and they may think that means, okay, you're just going to be chilled out and in your own thing, you're not going to care anymore. And the world will just burn while you're just in a hot tub feeling good. But that's not what it means. Serenity is the non-reactive heart. Where I see an injustice, for example, and rather than react to it out of my own pain and hurt, I take that breath, I ground myself, and my loving heart, connected with wisdom and integrity, knows how to bring something that my reaction does not know how to bring. It brings a higher good. It addresses the situation with more beauty and elegance and actually something that can heal the situation. When you study the great wisdom teachings, you see many examples of how people go to these wise masters, not because they do what the rest of us would think of doing, but because they get quiet and they tune in and they come up with a solution that we wouldn't have thought of. Uh, Mahatma Gandhi 
I believe, was an Enneagram One. I don't know for certain that he was a One, but his life is certainly a good illustration of the Type One principles and challenges. And he was famous for coming up with solutions to political problems and personal and specific problems that were not what anybody else would have thought of. But I think he was able to do this because he was in touch with his anger, he was in touch with his heart, and he could be in these situations without reacting, which gave him a power. And he wrote about this, this power to transmute his anger into a constructive energy, which changed the world. You read other great... Uh, teachers, wisdom teachers, moral teachers, and you see this over and over. And go back to scriptures again, uh, King Solomon. And uh, there's a lot of stories of the wisdom of Solomon. It isn't wisdom like knowing a lot of interesting information. It was knowing how to discern solutions to problems, but in a way that was baffling to people because it wasn't coming from the ego level. It was coming from this deeper place. This deeper place of wisdom has the precondition of serenity. You might remember the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Well, yes, that's what we're talking about here. Serenity is something that grows in us, that is cultivated as we keep doing our inner work. It's what moves us into the place where we can actually be a force for good in this world, where we're able to come into very traumatic, stressed out situations and bring another kind of light and possibility that is in no way a denial of the problems that are there. That's not what this is about at all. It very well, very clearly, beautifully sees the situation. But in doing that and holding it and holding the opposites, remember the law of three, seeing the yes and the no, the good and the bad, and holding it all, some other creative force can potentially enter the situation and bring us to something that we can't see from our positional consciousness. So you could say serenity is what arises when our positions dissolve, and we see a new possibility. It is not the cessation of caring. It is not the cessation of action. But it is not reacting to the situation, which gives me the ability to act in the situation. We don't see how much of our so-called action is reaction. When we're in our fixated patterns, whatever our Enneagram type is, we will be most of the time reacting, not acting. But we all have the capacity to just take that breath, to notice that little gap between the stimulus and the response. And in that gap is the possibility of some new intelligence coming into play in the situation. And that, my friends, is often our salvation whether we're dealing with a political or a social situation or with our own life and the decisions we have to make, we're dealing with an intimate relationship, all the above, um, that little gap can grow and become more established in the way we live our lives. And in that gap, we find this serenity. Huh? So that's 
as I said, the one is always, I don't know, I always find it very inspiring to explore these topics. And whether or not you're a one, I hope you're seeing the relevance of what we're looking at here as a kind of lesson for everybody. We all need to be able to discriminate the difference between our inner critic and what Gurdjieff called our conscience. Inner critic, as I was saying, is programming. It's beliefs. It's Some of them are conscious, some of them are unconscious, but it's imprints from the past. It lives in our opinions. It lives in our rigidity. It lives in the ways we attack ourselves. It lives in the way we put ourselves down. It lives in the way we put other people down. Conscience only arises when we've been present for a while. And for most people, it's the beginning of their true heart coming online. And so it's very interesting to me that one sits here as the end of the body-based types and the beginning of the heart types. Because this conscience is the transition, the awakening of the true heart, the deeper heart. Conscience, which is not consciousness, conscience is a heart quality. And it is a searing, burning sorrow. It's the awakening in us of the impulse to become truly human in the sense of what humans can be, to step up to the plate, to become, to use religious language, what God intended me to be. There's a, a place where we just can't do certain things to ourselves anymore. We start to feel that a lot of the stuff we have done to survive psychologically, to get along, from here now feels like a self-betrayal and we just can't betray ourselves anymore. And so this new power starts to rise in the heart and it starts to change our life. We're led by that. So one at its core, the lesson that's really relevant to everyone is that we all need to learn the difference between the inner critic and the inner critic from childhood. Some of us get a new improved inner critic from our spiritual path or from other things. Now we're beating ourselves up because we're not meditating long enough or something, right? None of that is the same as this arising in the heart where it becomes part of that awareness in the one of balance, alignment, integrity. We start to feel when we're going out of integrity. We start to feel when we're betraying ourselves. We start to know when we're not going with the truth anymore and we can't do it anymore. And when that happens, our life really, really begins to change. That is the real awakening of the heart. Mr. Gurdjieff said something very interesting about this. He said that a lot of traditional religion had the right view, but kept stumbling because that shift of the heart, the turning, the awakening of the heart requires first that we be present for a while, that we have to remember ourselves and then this will naturally come in the heart. If we try to go straight to the heart and change our heart or open our heart, but we're not present, we just produce a lot of emotional distortion, sentimentality, other kind of problems that we can see in the history of organized religion, whichever religion we might want to look at. That the deeper heart that the spiritual prophets and masters were teaching us about 
grows out of the soil of our groundedness in presence through our body. We can't approach our spiritual wholeness without being here first. My experience has taught me that's really true. And here at point one, I just see so much about how that all fits together and why it's so important that we all begin to understand that. Um, we live in a time where we're going to be facing a lot of choices. Our world is at a pivot point, And I think you don't have to be a psychic to notice that. So the more any of us can find this grounding in ourself, remember and speak and address the goodness in ourself and each other, the more we can raise and honor and follow this conscience in us, the more likely that our choices are going to be harmonious, helpful to others, and the best bet we've got at preparing whatever we can for the generations to come. And I'm sure anyone that's listening to me right now would be very aligned with that sensibility. So as you're listening to me right now, you may be feeling some resonance with what I'm saying, because I do believe that in our deepest heart, we know this truth. We do know the difference. We can't always remember how to get there. And we get scared. We get caught up in these patterns that we're looking at. But I do strongly feel that the more any of us can remember to work on this, to see our opinions, to see the way the inner critic steps right in there, to let ourselves be burned, in a sense, by the fire of that conscience, is to really offer ourselves to a bigger life. And this, for me, is what our spiritual journey is about. The one reminds me of this. May it remind all of us of this. So we want to talk about the integration issues, the inner lines. This is very interesting. Uh, if you look at the Enneagram symbol, you will see that the two lines uh, from one connect to point seven and point four. Point four is the stress point. So what that means is, as a one, I'm trying so hard to get it right, to do the right thing. I, in the lower side of one, I can get very uptight, very rigid, very insistent. I can rant at people sometimes. I, I'm very harsh with myself. I, whatever I do, it never feels like it's good enough, right? I'm my own worst critic. And I'm trying so hard. And after a while, it's just exhausting. I can't do this anymore. I can't do this to myself anymore. And there's a kind of collapse. And then I just want to sort of indulge myself. I want to make myself feel better. I want to feel sorry for myself. I want to curl up somewhere with something delicious and maybe watch old movies that I like or listen to a Leonard Cohen record or something. I, I just want to sort of draw the curtains and go inward and feel how hard this has been. And that's the four. That's the one goes to four. I, I sort of curl up and try to get in touch with my feelings. And I need to get in touch with my feelings. But I'm doing it in a way that's kind of an acting out because it's a reaction to how hard I'm being with myself the rest of the time. 
So it's a compensation, you see. The other direction is to seven, and I've already addressed it indirectly. But seven for the one represents freedom, play, adventure, getting out of the box. I think many people would be surprised that ones, when they're in private connection with people they really trust and love, are really funny, very mischievous, very fun-loving. Uh, and there's a part of me as the one that wants to run away to the circus. There's a part of me that just has had enough and wants to be free and do all sorts of wild things. And sometimes I do. I had a one years ago who was involved in a religious organization, and he told us about his AWOL trips to Las Vegas. And just these little permissions I give myself. But again, it's shadow. So I don't want my colleagues to know about this. I don't want the people in my life to know. A few intimate friends will know. Um, I had a friend who's an Enneagram One, and he was very studious in philosophy and science and quite serious about all of it. But he also played bass in punk rock bands. And it's, it's a sort of outlet for this other side of him. And so many people would be surprised at that part. Now, if the one gets too lost in this, these, these uh, compensations can become very extreme and can be a kind of rebellion against the very positions I'm taking. And that can put me in some very precarious positions as we will occasionally see in the news. But I think when we start to recognize what that move to seven represents, that desire to be free, that desire to be open, a restoration of curiosity, well, that's what happens. And we start to move toward the higher side of the seven, the higher levels of the seven. And then we are open to life again. We're open to ideas. We're open to communication. Life is more of a joy, an adventure. Uh, we're, we're stimulated by people who don't agree with us instead of thinking that they're idiots. Uh, so this, this is a healthy one. As you've seen in the other types, there is no such thing as a healthy version of the type without the integration point. Same here. There aren't healthy ones who haven't also worked on this seven side. And so the healthy seven and the healthy one kind of grow together and produce this truly helpful, life-loving, amazing person who's going to do their best to bring something good into this world. And as we'll see at the end, the high side of four also has an important lesson. We'll get to that at the end of the, the course. All of the wake-up calls are a shift from the healthy manifestation to sort of the average levels where the fixation kicks in, the passion kicks in, and there are symptoms. And if we can be present to those symptoms, it helps us know how to get back to the healthy expressions of our type. So for the one, you could look at it from a mental or an emotional or a physical uh, perspective, you know, going along with the three centers. In the mind, we start thinking we're the only one who cares, we're the only one who gives a damn, or maybe other people care, but they're not gonna be as careful and conscientious as I am. I'm the only one who can do this correctly. So there's this idea that I'm the only one who can save the day. 
And with it, interestingly, rather than that being like, yay, me, it feels like a burden. It feels like, oh God, here, I got to do this again. It feels like a weight on my shoulders, but I really believe I'm the only one who'll get this right. Now, when that kind of idea starts rattling around in my head, the my heart gets agitated. That agitation, the passion starts to kick in. I start to feel frustrated, kind of annoyed. Here I am at the office late and these other people went out and they're having beers and watching the game while I'm making sure the work gets done. We get resentful and we get frustrated. And don't people get this? So you can feel that agitation. You can see the stories in the mind. And then physically, we start that tension I talked about starts coming in, particularly our shoulders, our neck. We might grind our teeth. That's a common way that it shows up in many ones. It's interesting how we tend to hold anger in these particular parts of the body. And again, we probably give uh, massage therapists a good business you know, because we really get tight in these areas. So any of that, just noticing the physical contraction and tension, noticing the agitation, noticing this story running through my head that I'm the only one who can get this right, bringing awareness to any of that, compassionate, kind awareness to any of that will tend to soften the grip of those structures and get me moving back toward that curiosity, discernment, benevolence, and flexibility, which is the high side of one. And, you know, if you are a one, I'm going to guess this could be very helpful practice. But even if you're not a one, most of us can benefit from when we get triggered this way, which we will, learning to recognize it, bring kindness to it, and move through it. And that will tend to restore the higher side of one for all of us. So now we're going to engage a practice for point one that will deepen our awareness of the one qualities, the one essence. And again, if you are one, if that's your dominant type, this will be very helpful. And even if you're not, this can be a very useful practice. So let's see what we find. Take a moment to breathe into your body and to relax into the flow of sensation. It often helps to begin with the lower part of the body, sensing our feet, our ankles and legs and so forth, working our way up. relaxing our tensions as we go. As you find these tensions, relaxing them can simply mean being aware of the tension and breathing into that area, breathing a little more deeply. The body knows what to do when we give it half a chance. And as we have seen in the 
practice for point eight and the practice for point nine, you may start to feel yourself more settled in your lower body, in your belly area. Like a little more grounded and rooted into yourself. And here with point one, see if you can be aware of your spine, how it attaches to the back of that grounded area and rises up like a tree all the way to your skull. And as such, it starts to feel like a connection between your skull and what your head is open to and this grounded, rooted body sense. The line between those worlds with the heart in the middle is the spine. It's the part that connects the centers. And just breathe into the sense of the back of you. We usually have our attention way out front. Now we're going to relax and breathe and sense the back of us. You can even have the feeling as if you're looking from the back of your head, not the front, as if your eyes were back on either side of your spine and looking from there, whether your eyes are closed or open. And with this awareness of the spine, notice if the spine itself wants to move in any little micro way to adjust, to come into a more relaxed and centered alignment. You may too notice little movements at the juncture of your skull and your spine, the sort of back of your neck may want to let your skull move around a little bit to free up the some of the habitual tensions that can be there. And as you continue to breathe, you might feel the spine as not just some kind of material, but as a living column of presence full of life and energy and a kind of communication where signals from above are going down into the body and signals from the body are going up above. And to just notice how that affects you as you find more and more the sense of that spine. And you can sit in this 
modality as long as you like and see what happens. I think you'll find many surprises if you stay with it. You may notice various tensions in your back letting go of their own accord simply because we're bringing attention to places in us that need it. You can actually begin to feel how the spine has an intelligence that starts to bring more of an alignment between the head, the heart, and the belly. And once again, as you come out of this particular practice, be aware of maintaining some awareness of your spine as you move into action, as you move into the activities of your day.